It begins with the war-born development of DDT, this diabolical weapon of modern science saved millions of humans, but killed billions of insects. Man, with this newly discovered force, has at long last gained the upper hand in our age-old struggle. The really heavy blow fell only a few months ago. It came from laboratories where top scientists from famous universities and from industrial and government organizations collaborated to develop something new and different. They succeeded. They perfected Pestroy, the most effective weapon man has ever wielded against insects. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now I am become death the destroyer of worlds I suppose we all thought that one way or another the forest there is an unexpected glade that can only be found by the one who got lost the glade is surrounded by a forest that suffocates itself black trunks with the ash gray stubble of the lichens the tightly screwed trees are dead all the way up to the tops where a few occasional green twigs touch the light below shadow that broods on shadow the swamp that grows, but in the open the grass is strangely green and alive. Here are large stones as well as arranged. They must be cornerstones of a house. I might be wrong. Who lived here? No one can provide information about it. The names are somewhere in an archive that no one opens. Only the archives stay young. The oral tradition is dead and thus the memories. The gypsy tribe remembers but the literate forget. Take notes and forget. The croft is buzzing with voices. It is the center of the world. But the inhabitants die or move out. The chronicle ceases. It has been deserted for many years. And the croft becomes a sphinx. In the end Everything is gone except the foundation stones. Somehow I've been here before, but have to go now. I dive into the thickets. You can only penetrate with one step forward and two to the side, like a chest jumper. Eventually it becomes sparse and brightens. The steps become longer. A footpath creeps up to me. I'm back in the communications network. On the humming power line pole sits a beetle in the sun. Under the shining shields the flight wings are folded as ingenious as a parachute, packed by an expert. I think it's necessary to have been to the unexpected glade at least once, that place which the devil has yet to visit since it only came into being just as you unwittingly went in. But as you leave and now have left, another question comes to mind. Having heard the tree falling in the old forest, do you think now that you can ever unhear it? The Buddha, though an atheist, once spoke of God. In Sanskrit, the grandmother tongue for so many of us, he called it the Mahabrahma. Others have called out with names such as the Conqueror, the Unconquered, the All-Seeing, All-Powerful, the Lord, the Maker and Creator, the Ruler, Appointer and Orderer, Father of all that have been and shall be. And in the Brahma Jala Sutra the Buddha tells us that God is a being from the Abhaswara worlds who falls into a lower world through exhaustion of his merits and is reborn alone in the Brahma world. Forgetting his former existence, he imagines himself to have come into existence without cause. Now even such a high-ranking deity has no intrinsic knowledge of the worlds above his own. 
So we might ask, did the one choose to forget so that the place in the forest could be visited again? Let's go back to the days of a very old, nameless such a one, and in the cloud of unknowing let thee be signified by a triangle in the desert of the real. We shall have this symbol stand for three orders of domination associated with class society which sparked our interest in this investigation. It is the Alpha and the Omega, or for those initiated beyond overused Bible verses, the ox and his yoke, pondering an old riddle, how did I, the ox, the beginning, come to carry a yoke, the end? As you ride the ox through the cloud, the triangle appears towards the horizon across the endless sand. Is it not clear to you, dear listener, that the big letter A, the upside down ox, is a pictograph of a pyramid and its pyramidion? If accepting that, I wonder if you too would find it interesting to sum up what we have been talking about so far by allowing the notion that maybe we didn't build that ideological resurrection apparatus, the pyramid, because we were slaves. Maybe we did it because we really thought that work would make us free. Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of The Return of the Repressed, and I guess what we could call the second season of our Biological Peace and Warfare series. I want to begin with saying thank you to those of you who have helped the show grow by sharing it one way or another in the last couple of weeks. Uh, It is really rewarding to see. And uh, an extra big thank you to those important ones who signed up on the Patreon. Now I have no choice but to keep the show going. Uh, I set a goal of 50 Patreons before I start making bonus episodes. So please head on over to the Patreon and drop some coins for the show. I really, really appreciate it. Again, thank you. Now, we will start to travel through continents of knowledge production that are really close to my heart which is I guess indicated by the slightly mad perhaps uh, seemingly incomprehensible intro it's time we look at the mother of all conspiracies the green revolution which uh, is a stupid name because there is nothing green about it but um, I will continue to use it It is the ongoing story of how the ruling class will bring about the global techno-feudal rent society as all arable land and everything associated with food production from seed to data to water gradually becomes centralized and through and through owned by an unnamed high bourgeoisie conglomerate. When dealing with a conspiracy as big as this one, we need to selectively choose our focus since in one way or the other, it involves everything. (laughs) Big Pharma, Big Chem, the war industry, and every major bank and financial institution that has ever existed. I will try to do my best to make this as comprehensible as possible. I know a lot of noise is going around on social media, especially in the fields of uh, nutrition about all the dangers of big ag and how they are ruining our bodies and the planet, which of course is true in every respect and a lot of them are doing a good job. However, that message is often alarmist and bundled in with expensive solutions that these uh, agents are trying to sell in order to improve your gut health or mind health or just overall health, you know, your eating habits, etc. Which can uh, get kind of tiresome if you, like me, is more interested in the parapolitical name-dropping history than consumer solutions to the class struggle of being fed soil and green. So, um, 
As a microbial-oriented farmer who has spent many years on the third world countryside and even uh, managed to get about two degrees in agricultural history, among other topics of interest, allow me to take you on a journey which in modern times, conveniently considering our, let's say, four-episode introduction, starts off with a manipulated grain seed from Japan in 1946. In the late 30s, Konjiro Inazuka was transferred from the Iwate Agricultural Experiment Station to the North China Institute of Industrial Science, which was set up in 1936 by the Japanese Imperial Foreign Affairs. Inazuka would stay there until 1947, and during the two decades he worked on a wheat variety named Norin Ten. Norin Ten was a so-called semi-dwarf wheat, a land-raised grain, the breeding history of which probably goes back to the 3rd or 4th century of the Three Kingdoms period in Korea, the Sam Han. In 1945 it caught the attention of one of MacArthur's scientists, a man named Cecil Salmon, who collected or stole it, take your pick, together with 16 other varieties, officially on behalf of the U.S. Agricultural Research Service, the ARS. But as we will see, someone else was pulling the strings. Salmon passed on his loot to another scientist named Orville Fogel, who in turn passed it on to Norman Borlau, Norman Borlau, like many other criminals against humanity, would one day receive the Nobel Peace Prize for what happened next. Borlau, who was working for the Rockefeller Foundation, brought the seed to Mexico. Why did he bring it to Mexico? Well, back in 1943, the Rockefellers had created a new department within the Mexican government, called the Office of Special Services. Yes, you heard it right, the OSS but uh, not necessarily the OSS, which uh, we are usually familiar with. To understand the importance of this event, uh, other than the glimpse at the immense power held by the Rockefellers, who can create ministerial departments within the parliamentary apparatus of sovereign nations, we need to look a bit at the history of Mexico and Spanish colonialism. During the Mexican Revolution, the agrarian socialists of the Zapatistas had fought to overthrow the Hacienda system of the old Spanish colonialists, a system in which 90% of the country's land was owned by 1% of the population, and over 90% of the population had no land at all. One million peasants would die in the struggle to take back some 47% of the land to small farmers. The uh, Haciendas are a part of the original crime of the proto-capitalist drug and trafficking syndicates that we know as the chartered trading companies of the West Indies. Corporations that annihilated the majority of indigenous ethnobotany and uh, agricultural tradition. Kept a few crops and created the first monocultures which turned those plants into the first globally traded commodities in the 1500s and the 1600s. Not a bad legacy to pick up from if you're aspiring to total control of the world's food production. Still, it boggles the mind why any nation would think to learn from the Americans in agriculture since... uh, The Dust Bowls and the Great Depression of the 30s had made it very clear just how vulnerable the capital-intensive practice of monocultural cropping could really be. The trick was, and the trick still is, to hide the whole project under the disguise of science. Thus the OSS of the Rockefellers would later become the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center. In Asia, together with Ford, in 1966, they would create the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines, the IRRI. Three years later, the Centro Internacional de Agricultura Tropical, the CIAT in Colombia, and the International Institute for Tropical Agriculture in Nigeria. Which means that by the 60s, as the first patents on nature itself were just around the corner, with the Plant Variety Protection Act of 1970, 
Ford and Rockefeller had organized bases in every part of the global south to make sure that the centralization of the Green Revolution was on a level of monopoly concentration that the old colonialists could only have dreamt of. Well, I dreamed I saw the knights in armor come and saying something about a queen. There were peasants singing and drummers drumming and the archers split the tree. There was a fanfare blowing to the sun that was floating on the breeze. Look at Mother Nature on the run in the 1970s. Look at Mother Nature on the run in the 1970s. I was lying in a burned-out basement With the full moon in my eyes I was hoping for replacement When the sun burst through the sky There was a band playing in my head And I felt like getting high thinking about what a friend had said I was hoping it was a lie thinking about what a friend had said I was hoping it was a lie just arrived in Mexico so we can understand how they pulled it off. Well, what about this guy Norman Borla? At the Mexican end of the industrial espionage link that ran all the way to Japan. Who was he? Norman Borla started off as a member of the Alpha Gamma Rho fraternity, the biggest agricultural fraternity in the US, which according to its own history was born out of the Morrill Act of 1862, which is one of the single biggest land grab projects in the US history, involving nearly 11 million acres of indigenous land, approximately 250 tribes, bands and communities, and over 160 violence-backed treaties and land seizures. This was done, it was said, so that 52 agricultural universities could be built that included not just the landed aristocracy, 
but the sons and daughters of white aspiring petty bourgeoisie farmers. Which in a way should tell us all we need to know about this project, which is uh, that in the name of research, indigenous communities and their ecologies can be sacrificed en masse. After school, during the war in the 40s, he then went on to work for DuPont, where he developed various biocides to kill living organisms that he did not fully understand. The biggest contestant in the planning of herbicidal warfare against Germany and Japan was compound 2,4-D by British Imperial Chemical Industry et al. One of the newest and most versatile weapons in Dow's arsenal of chemical warfare is 2,4-Dow weed killer, proved in action against hundreds of weeds in a wide variety of crops. 2,4-D kills the entire weed, roots and all. Its victims include most broad-leaved annual weeds as well as perennials. Even perennials with deep root systems may be eradicated by repeated applications. Most grasses are not harmed when it's properly applied, nor is the soil poisoned. Dow set out to demonstrate the effectiveness of its chemical killers on a nationwide scale. 2,4-D is a growth regulator type of weed killer. The action is physiological, appearing to upset the plant's growth processes causing modification and breakdown of its parts, and causing gradual but certain death. Can't go wrong with that. Um, so the ICI, the giant chem corporation, was involved in uh, the Tube Alloys project, that is the uh, British nuclear program. So too was DuPont in the US as they operated uh, the Hanford plutonium production plant. Through the uh, competition, cooperation, interactivity of the high bourgeoisie departments uh, such as ICI, DuPont, Dow, Rockefellers, Chicago University, the USDA and the uh, Rothamsted Experimental Station, one of the oldest agricultural research institutions in the world, uh, Compound 24D soon became the first actually existing chemtrail project. Around the time that DuPont set up the Savannah River plant for hydrogen bomb production, 2,4-D became Torazine, which uh, the British spread in hundreds of thousands of liters over millions of square meters in Malaysia during what they called the Malay Emergency. It was so called because an emergency and not a full-scale war of the dirtiest tricks known to man would allow the colonial big ag corporations to file for insurance claims should something happen to the rubber and palm oil plantations of Southeast Asia. The weaponized herbicide Torazine would later become the base for the more famous rainbow herbicides. The agent uh, green, pink, purple, blue, white, orange, orange 2, orange 3 and the Babylonian whore mother Enhanced Agent Super Orange, Dow Herbicide M3393, as the international conglomerates sponsored Operation Ranch Hand of the chemical project Trail Dust in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. But I'm getting way ahead of myself here. This part of the story needs to be put in its correct context namely the Green Revolution as a political weapon against the third phase of that other science preoccupied with the disintegration of class society, which had just made a name for itself due to the strategic success of a peasant son from Hunan. I even uh, forgot to mention the involvement of the Third Reich, and uh, one should never forget to mention the Third Reich. But that will all come later in its own chapter episode of this saga. What I have uh, done though is perhaps to make clear that as Norman Borla went from DuPont to work with the Rockefellers in Mexico in 1943, he wasn't coming out of a business milieu clogged with the new trending petty worries of environmentalism. So why were they so interested in this Japanese semi-dwarf wheat grain? Well, already after World War I, it had become clear that the industrial nations had set in motion an immense production and accumulation of synthetic fertilizers that did not need 
the age-old method of returning organic matter to the soil. Instead of giving back to the soil an infinite web of trace minerals, nutrients and microbial fibers, one could rob the soil by bribing it with three elements, NPK, that is nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium. We will go through in more detail where these fertilizers came from, but for now the problem that faced the agents looking to establish a monopoly on seed was that when they fed these elements to the wheat varieties of the 20s and 30s, they grew so tall that they started to bend over. The inbreeding of semi-dwarf genetics solved this issue and gave birth to Pitic 62 and Penjamo 62. So it wasn't that the native crops which had come about after tens of millennia of indigenous breeding by local farmers and their land race varieties, uh, that they were inherently low yielding. It was that they did not fit with a capitalist intensive mode of production. Those heirloom varieties created too much of an independent condition for a national conglomerate to repeat the process of primitive accumulation of land that had taken place before. The independence uh, comes from the fact that they produce much more straw than the dwarf varieties. Straw, which is the best method of all to increase the microbial soil life that can fight off pathogens. The best method to increase the nutritional richness of the growth medium. And indeed the best readily available mulch to retard weed growth. It is also a fodder for the animals used in the agricultural process. A pretty much unbeatable system that has cultivated the political consciousness of peasants' uprisings since the dawn of the state, and indeed with the introduction of iron, though definitely not the only one, the most famous experiments of democracy in ancient Greece, since in Athens, unlike Sparta, you could be both a farmer and a soldier, not either or. But with a patent centralized seed breeding of dwarf varieties, all these obstacles to totalitarian state control were made redundant. By the initial, though historically relatively short-lived, marketable boost of grain yield at the expense of straw, richer farms who could uh, afford fertilizers outmaneuvered the poorer farmers who were coerced into proletarian servitude of the new factories as the core countries started to de-industrialize. You know the story. It is as old as the slave empires. As Ziki from the 1978 film Blue Collar said, Everybody know what the plant is. The plant just shot for plantation. The slightly richer farmers would soon be outmaneuvered themselves as they started to realize that they now had to pay for the seeds every year which they were not allowed to keep or openly pollinate, something they had been used to doing since, well again, the dawn of time. They too had to pay for the fertilizers, without which there would be even less grains than before. And without straw, they also had to pay to feed the animals that worked for them. And without straw, soon they had to start paying for herbicide and pesticide, as more and more of their land became a single monocrop farm, they also had to buy their own food. And with monocrop and soil as a dead NPK medium, the bacterias and the viruses started to proliferate. It might freak you out a little bit to know that these new so-called miracle seeds have an average lifespan of one to three years before they have to be remade in the lab to resist a new pathogen that their predecessor brought into being. With all these new costs of the miracle seed, one has to thank God for the World Bank, right? The World Bank, you see, followed wherever the Green Revolution went, making sure that ecological and economic indebtment went hand in hand. And when in the beginning of the 60s, 95% of Mexico's wheat crops used the semi-dwarf varieties developed by Borlo, in just a decade, the neighbor in the south had become a grain colony of the US. With such a success, the Rockefellers and the Ford Foundation turned their eyes towards a much bigger prey, India.
1949, when the People's Republic of China was declared on Tiananmen Guangchang, the civil war between the nationalists and the communists was ebbing out. The peasantry, who had suffered war and famine through the first half century, and again since the dawn of time before that, rose up to take back their land from the warlords, the landlords and the compradors who had exported their products while their families starved. The war was bloody 
and scared the living shit out of the colonial authorities of the rest of Asia. Warren Weaver, not a farmer, peasant or an agronomist, but a mathematician and an early computer geek who was the director of the Rockefeller's Natural Science Division, calculated that agricultural science had an important, if not the most important, role in the new war against communism. Quote, The problem of food has become one of the world's most acute and pressing problems, and directly or indirectly it is the cause of much of the world's present tension and unrest. Agitators from communist countries are making the most of the situation. The time is now ripe, in places possibly overripe, for sharing some of our technical knowledge with these people. Appropriate action now may help them to attain by evolution the improvements, including those in agriculture, which otherwise may have to come by revolution. End of quote. As we noted earlier, the Malay revolution had already begun as the British backstabbed the Malayan people's anti-Japanese army, a communist guerrilla army which the uh, imperialists had worked with to fight the Japanese during their occupation, now became the victim of assassinations of leading leftist figures. Chin Peng, leader of the Malay Communist Party, went underground and reorganized the guerrilla which became the Malayan National Liberation Army, the MNLA, which aided by Mao Zedong thought attacked the monocrop plantations in retaliation of the assassinations. A struggle which they would continue to fight for independence until 1989 against the Federal Monoplantation Security Forces of Malaysia, Wilmar International, and its partners Kellogg's Nestle, Colgate Palmolive, as well as the big rubber giants Conti AG, Bridgestone, Goodyear, Michelin, etc. Having uh, worked as a farmer on rubber and palm oil plantations in Malaysia, I can tell you that these corporations are some of the most vicious in the world. Continental, the world's largest rubber company, learned their version of Fordism, as as is so often the case, through the disciplination of labor at Neungame complex, of 85 concentration camps during the Reich. At one place where I worked, though I personally was at a local farm surrounded by a bigger one, the majority of the workforce was made up by basically unpaid refugees from Burma with sky blue United Nations passports. If the uh, if the resistance of people like Chin Peng, Hu Chi Minh and Commander Dante in the Philippines would spread and cause a similar development in India, which, unbeknownst even to engaged leftists, is the most successful communist country in the world when considering party membership on a local commune level, would be the major brick in the domino theory which guided much of the free market and the Green Revolution movements during the last century. Thus something had to be done to achieve recruitment of peasants into corporate farming rather than communist revolutionary groups. There were three groups of international agencies involved in transferring the American model of agriculture to India. The private American foundations, the American government and the World Bank. The Ford Foundation had been involved in training and agricultural extension since 1952. The Rockefeller Foundation had been involved in remodeling the agricultural research system in India since 1953. In 1958, the Indian Agricultural Research Institute, which had been set up in 1905, was reorganized and Ralph Cummings, the field director of the Rockefeller Foundation, became its first dean. Weaver, again with some other racists from the Rockefeller Foundation, said in their notes on India in 1953 that Quote, the villages uh, within region uh, are as uniform as so many anthills. Indeed, from the air, where a number of villages may be seen simultaneously, they have the appearance of uh, structures built by creatures motivated largely by inherent uh, animal instincts and devoid of any inclination to depart from a fixed hereditary pattern. 
The villagers maintain themselves on a subsistence level with respect to food, but do not produce a surplus for the cities. India has reached a point where the practice of agriculture no longer serves the traditional and important purpose of uh, providing leisure for the development of the creative aspects of culture, the arts, the science and religions." End of quote. What the man meant was, of course, that uh, they did not produce enough for the white man's export and the old market of the British East India Company. And despite this, they had, under thousands of years, managed to produce tens of thousands of different rice varieties, more stable and more enriched with culture, art, sciences and religion than the mines behind Ford or Rockefeller, corrupted by overcomputation and erroneous formulas, could ever achieve with their letter and number abbreviated food imitations. The International Rice Research Institute was set up in 1960 by the Rockefeller and Ford Foundations. Nine years after the establishment of a premier Indian institute, the Central Rice Research Institute, uh, CRRI, in Katak. The Katak Institute was working on rice research based on indigenous knowledge and genetic resources, a strategy clearly in conflict with the American-controlled strategy of the International Rice Research Institute. Under international pressure, the director of CRRI was removed when he resisted handing over his collection of rice germplasm to IRRI and when he asked for restraint in the hurried introduction of the high-responsive varieties from IRRI. The Madhya Pradesh government gave a small stipendium to the ex-director of SRRI so that he could continue his work at the Madhya Pradesh Rice Research Institute at Raipur. On this shoestring budget he conserved 20,000 indigenous rice varieties in situ in India's rice bowl in Chhattisgarh. Later the MPRRI, which was doing pioneering work in developing a high-yielding strategy based on the indigenous knowledge of the Chhattisgarh tribals, was also closed down due to the pressure from the World Bank, which was linked to IRRI through CGIAR, because MPRRI had reservations about sending its collection of germplasm to IRRI. In the Philippines, uh, IRRI seeds were called seeds of imperialism. Robert Onate, president of the Philippines Agricultural Economics and Development Association, observed that IRRI practices had created debt and new dependence on agrochemicals and seeds. Quote, this is the Green Revolution connection, end of quote, he remarked. Quote, new seeds from the CGIAR global crop seed systems, which will depend on the fertilizers, agrochemicals and machineries produced by conglomerates of transnational corporations. End of quote. America's chemical industries have set aside Chemical Progress Week as a time to take stock of past accomplishments and future goals. On this special occasion, here is Mr. Crawford H. Greenwald, president of the DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware. Good evening. One of our own DuPont research developments provides a good example of America's recent chemical progress. But there are many unfilled needs that present a challenge to research ingenuity. Benefits that will greatly enrich our lives. Those dreams will become realities in our nation's laboratories for they contain the keys to progress. But there is another, even more vital factor. It is faith in the future of America. Faith that so long as people can be encouraged to do their best, there is no limit to what they can accomplish. Because we at DuPont have that kind of faith, we now spend nearly $60 million a year for research, working to uncover knowledge that will contribute to better living tomorrow. As long as American industry is free to plan for the future, to build, and to grow, I am very certain 
that the progress of the future will far surpass the progress of the past. Robert Donate in the Philippines could call the CGIAR's bluff because he had seen it before. In India, back in the colonial days proper, the British introduced the system of samindari, or landlordship, to help divert land from growing food to growing opium and indigo, as well as to extract revenue from the cultivators. R.P. Dutt records the sudden increase in agricultural revenues when the East India Company of British soldier traders took over revenue rights of Bengal. Quote, in the last year of administration of the last Indian ruler of Bengal, in 1764-65, the land revenue realized was 817,000 sterling pounds. In the first year of the company's administration, in 1765-66, the land revenue realized in Bengal was 1,470,000. By It is not done by recognition of malnutrition or starvation statistics, which have kept on rising, but by consulting export revenue numbers and then translating them to the dollar-a-day theorem. A completely arbitrary number which no third world organization or nation engaged in the elimination of poverty makes use of in any practical sense. It is a number designed by the World Bank which if one simply increases it to $2 or god forbid $5 a day, which maybe would include bare minimum subsistence, one would discover that very little has been done to combat a worldwide poverty that keeps on rising. According to the World Bank itself, half of the world's population still live under this threshold of $5, 2.5 billions of those malnourished. In the coming episodes I will try to go into more detail about how the World Bank and the Foundation skew numbers to make it look like the Green Revolution will feed the world. But for now, let it be known that any such statistics is faulty, since real poverty data has only been collected since 1981, and our story is still taking place in the 50s and the 60s. Before 1965 in Punjab, a good textbook example of the onslaught that I have been trying to describe. Rice was an insignificant crop. It then rose dramatically, replacing diverse food networks which had been developed over millennia. In five years the highly responsive varieties were majority. And the same year in 1971, Tasting Blood, the CGIAR, which I already mentioned, was established. The Consultative Group for International Agricultural Research, as it is so called, was quickly set up after the Rockefeller Foundation in 1970 proposed a worldwide network of agricultural research centers under a permanent secretariat. This was further supported and developed by the Ford Foundation, the World Bank, the FAO, that is the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, and UNDP, that is the United Nations Development Program. Again, just as we saw in the days of the League of Nations, when Rockefellers used the organization to set up its private epidemic intelligence bureau all over Asia under very suspicious circumstances, it now made itself the permanent secretariat of the world's largest agricultural data collector, effectively making the foundation the foremost leader in industrial espionage in broad daylight 
through the United Nations. Within the next five-year plan, just like in Mexico, these seeds from Borlaug's experiments dominated 95% of Punjab rice cultivation, which had risen from 292,000 hectares to 856,000 in 1977. And with the monocrops came the pathogens. Rice root weevil, 1953. Sheat blight, 1960. Rice leaf folder, 1964. Paddy caseworm, pink stem borer, rice therps, 1964. Bacterial blight in 1965. White backed plant hopper, green leaf hopper, big white leaf hopper, mace borer, in 1966. Rice therps in 67. Four different kinds of leaf hopper in 69. Leaf flea beetle, horned caterpillar, white hairy caterpillar, yellow hair caterpillar in 1971. And brown plant hopper in 1974. All drawn to the monocultures like an artificial light, brought to the Indians by what the foundations called apostles of the miracle seeds and just like before with every five-year plan the seeds had to be phased out and a new one introduced one to three times i mean does this still sound like the high-tech solution it's made out to be to you dear listener or is it starting to sound like a conspiracy of grifters pushing some real shite in 1985 the percentage would still stand at 95 percent but the hectares and the Rockefeller seed cultivation had risen to 1,703,000 hectares in the breadbasket of India and Pakistan, Punjab, home to some 200 million people.
Fail. 